and welcome to another episode of Tots. I'm your host, Ben Gardner. Today on the show, we have Neil Moore. He is a wildlife tour guide and the human Red Bull. Neil, welcome on the show. Hey, Ben. Thank you so much. Good to see you again. Good to see you too, dude. Last time I saw you, it was in Jackson, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. And I believe we were in the Tetons and we yeah. were spotting some bears uh, on the side of the road while we were driving uh, dude, in, in you your safari truck. you were spotting bears, man. You had the eye. I mean, I try to spot while driving. And <laughs> sure, I feel like I can, you know, spot here and there or something cool. But man, to just have you like snipe two bears off the side and added a lot <laughs> to the tour. I mean, to go from... Snipe them with the eyes, not the... <laughs> Yeah, while you're looking and you're engaged, it was awesome. You know, some people just sit on those tours and kind of just like, you know, think it's like an automated recording. And I'm just like, they hit play and okay, they just get what they get. And it's like, no, like you as the guest fill in so much more with questions and with spotting. And yeah, we had that good moose. If you can get a moose and a black bear on a morning trip like that, that was awesome. And that was crazy to me. Um, I, I'd never seen like a bear in person, like in the wild, Mm -hmm. you see him in like zoos and places like that. But to see two bears in the morning in the Tetons, you've got these crazy mountains in the background and the bears are just like being bears and doing their shit. Right. And just walking along. We're the perfect distance. We're like, you could see them so close and like, you know, in detail, but also we weren't close enough that we were interacting, you know, influencing what their lives were. And it was just like, those are bears being bears amongst this crazy environment that I luckily can call home, which is like these crazy mountains. You know, it's, it's a special spot for sure. It's awesome. And I think it's it's one of those weird places that like I, I'm going to be honest, like my family normally when we take trips, like we go to a beach resort, we lay mm-hmm. around like that's the that's the trip. So when they were like, yeah, we're going to go to Wyoming, we're renting these like cabins, things like that. I'm an outdoorsy guy, but I was still like I, I like sitting on the beach and drinking cocktails. Yeah, like yeah. I was worried it was not going to be um it was not going to be exactly what I what I look for in a vacation. And, yeah, uh, it's a different it just, type of vacation, especially like when it comes to wildlife. You're like, oh, vacation, like sleep in, no alarms, no nothing. It's like, yeah, no, sorry, <laughs> we need to be moving by like sunrise and be out until sunset. You know, it's, it, it, dude, it was nuts, and uh, it it completely blew out of the water. Like anything that I had in mind for what a vacation would be, like you said, it's like different. Um, like. I started a, a weight loss goal like a couple months before that. And I'm right. I'm like, oh shit, like I'm going on a trip. I'm going to gain a bunch of weight. I lost like three pounds Ugh. on the trip because every day we're walking or hiking or, yep. or riding bikes or doing something like that for like, you know, five to 10 miles every day. So it, yeah. was, it was great. And uh, I mean, where you call home is, is absolutely gorgeous. I don't think... I've ever been anywhere that's more beautiful with just the mountains and the greenery and the wildlife. It's, it's insane. So I'm, I'm very jealous of you that you get to live there. It's uh yeah, I feel very fortunate. You know, it can be hard to make a living here and there, but it's every morning you wake up with that sunrise and you're like, yep, it's worth it. I'm, I'm staying here as long as I can. Yeah. yeah it's, it's crazy beautiful. Um, so how did you fall into or, or plan out, I should say either one, uh, becoming a wildlife tour guide in that area. Cause from my perspective, like my friends that do similar things, it was kind of something that they did fall into. Like I said, it wasn't something that they planned out, but what was your like story around that? Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting background. Yeah. Everyone finds their way to Jackson, uh, in their own way. We like to say, you know, very few people are from Jackson. We just kind of fall in there somehow and then fall in love and never leave. And I actually, I grew up right in San Francisco, total city kid, like into big rap concerts and you know, that kind of thing. But, um, and I still love it. It's part of me for sure. But, 
um, I got into the outdoors through mainly a lot of surfing and rock climbing um, in, in the Bay. You know, it felt very fortunate while you have this huge city, you also have world-class waves breaking, you know, right in your town. So surfing with yeah. my brother is climbing. I was working at a climbing gym in San Francisco and actually in a weird small world story, I'll circle back around to, I was in a, I was always in a wildlife watching, you know, Nat Geo growing up and just being hooked on mm-hmm. animals. Um, and I worked at the San Francisco zoo for a bit and I was always studying on my own. But anyway, I'm at the climbing gym that my brother and I worked at and we're in uh, the sauna and my, my brother at the time is applying to colleges. So colleges are kind of in my mind. I'm a sophomore in high school at the time though, ways off. And he, we're listening to these guys talk about Jackson Hole and how rad it is. And like all the skiing and all the climbing. I was like, wow, that sounds cool. Like I'm just going to go home and Google like colleges with wildlife biology programs, like good ones near Jackson Hole. Cause it just sounds yeah. like where, and I knew that was what I wanted to study. Like always wildlife biology. And all, all of a sudden pops up Missoula, Montana, University of Montana. And, um, and their program just seemed out of the, you know, one of the top in the country and just blew my mind. So that was just like in my head, sophomore year. And sure enough, like senior year comes, I'm applying to colleges. I, by that time I was hooked on Montana, kind of forgot about the whole Jackson Hole thing. That just led me to find that college. Right. You know, basically applied, got accepted, didn't even look at other schools. Just like, yep, going there. Um, fell in love with the Rockies. I mean, Missoula is incredible. Oh, Montana's yeah. incredible. Um, and but I had always seen this like larger long distance future as being a wildlife researcher, like biologist. And so I, I walked into that. Um, I was working a lot of research projects where you know tagging, collaring animals, um, capturing animals, whatever, collecting the data. But at the time through college, I, w- I started guiding and I was working for the climbing gym on campus and I would guide these backpacking and rock climbing trips all throughout Montana, a little bit in Utah, Idaho. Um, and I realized like, wow, taking what I love in the outdoors and showing other people that stuff, like getting them stoked on what you're stoked on felt really good. I was like, this is cool. And then yeah, the wildlife awesome. stuff, as fun as it was, it was like me and like one dude living in the woods for like three to four months at a time. <laughs> It was awesome. I had some incredible life experiences, some incredible work. I, you know, not a lot of people get to do. Um, but you know, if those one to two people that you're with for three months, you know, you're not maybe. Usually, we were pretty tight. Sometimes, not so much. And uh, I realized on a couple of those projects, I was like, man, I'm a little more social than I thought. I like people too. And the guiding was a testament to that. Every time I go back and I, te- I taught semester long climbing courses for credit and showing these kids rock climbing, getting them into it, I was like, wow. I really like the guiding too. And Jackson, suddenly I hear about is this place, this beautiful opportunity to combine the love of guiding and the wildlife, um, a little more social realm of the wildlife field. And I went down to try it for a summer. Um, basically live your classic Jackson story now, tried it for one year and I'm on number six and it will become 30, 40 and 50. Um, I love it. Wow. So yeah, it was kind of a Dude, weird. that's great. Change. Yeah, it was a weird change in the, you know, a lot of the kids I went to school with in wildlife biology, they're still running that wildlife biologist, you know, degree, look for a master's, work for, you know, state wildlife agencies. And it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing field. But uh, this area has offered a totally different realm in the wildlife perspective where I get to work with a lot of people too, which is fun. Oh, I'm sure. And that was a nice way too to marry kind of your different interests, like going at first towards like, strictly animal stuff and you're with one other person to now you lead you know giant tour groups through the tetons and yellowstone mm-hmm. and show them wildlife like yeah that, i mean it, only it me could like not have years. worked out better 
Yeah, and it only hit me like three years in. I was like, wait, that conversation in that sauna, like <laughs> I, I was I was destined to be in Jackson Hole ever since sophomore year in high school in that sauna. So um, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people have uh, crazy stories from saunas, but uh, yours is yours is very tame and inspiring. The one I want to you said, uh, yeah, you said you worked um, at the San Francisco Zoo, right? Mm-hmm. So was that like one of your first experiences with getting involved with animals, and and what was that like? Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was. I mean, I was literally like, dude, I was in eighth grade at the time and worked on this like. Um, uh, well, I've never even put this together until now, how similar that is to what I do now. But anyway, uh, yeah, we worked <laughs> on like this nature trail where we would rotate what animals we'd hold, um, whether it was like a tiny alligator, ball python, um, you know, chinchilla or something, and show families that would walk around. It was kind of like the kids' area of the zoo. And just mm-hmm. be like, you know, like you, your kids got to see how cool this critter is. And so we'd tell them all about it, tell them the biology. And um yeah, that was kind of probably my first encounter with the wildlife program. And then in high school, worked a couple sea turtle projects, um, tagging them as they came and nested on beaches. Um, but yeah, and then it just took off once college came. But yeah, I guess the zoo was number one. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I've I've had some experience in uh, in that realm as well, working for uh, a small conservation center. It's like it's I th- I feel like it's always the same at like the zoos or these centers. It's like okay, we've got a small alligator, we've got a ball python, uh, yeah. a bearded dragon, a and then an insect, right? Like, <laughs> enough to hold, but also cool enough to show. And yeah, oh yeah, meet yeah. that. There was um there was this video uh that uh that just came up um i don't know if i can i can show it uh if so i'll, I'll put it to the okay. to the right of me but um there's this woman and she's doing handling at a kid's birthday party and she messes up her um her hold on the alligator and it jumps forward and grabs her hand and pulls her into the uh the enclosure it's like this shallow water enclosure and I, I don't think so. Like I've worked with alligators. I've worked with crocodiles um, yeah. and, and not very large ones, but, but I've worked with them. And the one thing that like, I feel like I would totally mess up in that situation is when they go for their death roll, when they spin to try and rip mm-hmm. off yep. whatever they've bitten, I feel like I would still be freaked out. I would have frozen and then my arm would be gone. Yeah. She, rolled she rolled with it. it. Yes, oh, she rolled with it. I was, I was almost so like, impressed. Almost like maybe it's happened once or twice before. <laughs> I, uh, you wonder, right? Yeah. But it was, it was insane to watch um, because she rolled with it. She did everything right. She stayed calm. And then a dad at the birthday party jumped on top of the gator and like held it down. And then eventually um, it let go of her hand and and he restrained it until wow. he felt like he was safe. He pushed it to the side. Um, but yeah, having having worked with uh, with alligators and crocodiles like that, I that's the nuttiest video I've seen. Dude, that's recently. wild. I mean, like I that is one animal. Like I think I used to fear them as a kid. I have like my horror my horror dreams, like nightmares, were with gators and crocodiles. I remember like I worked in this sea turtle project up Georgia, and all the sea turtle works at night, like when they come and nest. And so during the day, you like try to sleep, but it's so humid, like no way. And I love catching snakes, so I was like, okay, I'm just gonna spend my day looking for snakes and gators and stuff. And there was this pond that had all these little baby gators. And I asked the biologist about it. He knew where I was. And I was like, hey man, like, have you seen that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, just watch out. Mom's 12 feet, so be safe near that pond. 
And like, I remember like, you can call them over. You can make their little sound that they make like, and like, that is a, that is a great impression. Sorry. (laughs) If if you've never heard an alligator, that's like a baby alligator. That is a perfect impression. Well, I had practice because they were, they were, you know, there and I like would call them and they'd come swimming over. And I always remember you'd hear this like lower growl and mom's eyes would just come out of the water. Like, Hey, just, just letting you know, I'm here. If you mess with these things at all, like they'd be feet from me, but like mom be in the center. Yeah. And then me and the biologist, we ended up later jumping on like a five, four to five foot. He took the head, I took the tail. And I was just so, we just jump on this thing in the water and it's just so mind blowing how powerful they are. You know, really, you know, here we don't have gators, but any of these animals, you know, bison, moose, bears, like the power they have is, I mean, besides our brain, we are very weak, you know, speed, we're not fast, yeah. not that strong. And you, <laughs> when you learn about these animals, you're like, wow, like, how does that person in Yellowstone think they can touch a bison? Like, these things are insane. And it really gives a respect to nature. That is something I've just always been fascinated with. So that's another thing I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. It's in the same realm of, uh, of touching the bison. So when I went to Yellowstone, I think this is what, like a month, a month ago, like a month and a week ago, something like that. Um, I was just blown away by how close you could get to the different animals and the rules around the Tetons and Yellowstone, um, uh, for those listening are, uh, I believe you have to stay a hundred yards away from, uh, like your main predators. So like your wolves and your bears, and then it's 25 yards away from your larger mammals, such as like moose bison, elk, deer, things like that. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, no, you're spot on. Okay. So the reason that these rules are in place are because Yellowstone and the Tetons are not these like wildlife preserves where, you know, you're going up to like a fenced in section that looks like it's like a half-assed built thing out of Jurassic Park. It's like literally you can drive around to places and the wildlife is right there. The infrastructure is essentially a couple mini like towns and roads. And so those rules are there to keep people safe, but yet every single year, there are still incidents of people doing really, really dumb stuff with the wildlife there. Um, and I remember being back, I think for a couple weeks, um, and I got like a notification that uh, a woman had like been injured or injured or killed by uh, a bison and it was like near a section that we were like a like a week prior or something like that so if from your experience you're there all the time you you deal with the tourists and the animals like how often does something like that happen where people are just pushing the boundary too much yeah i mean pushing the boundary way more often than you would think and or hope you know um yeah luckily amount of incidents are um, are lower than the amount of times people push it. You know, there's a lot of times they push it and get lucky. Um, it, but it is every year people get injured hundred percent. Um, you know, we have kind of the top three would be bison, moose, and then elk in terms of the three most dangerous. And this is where the problem lies is, well, there's a couple, but you, you have this advertising, whether it be direct advertising or just, you know, the nature of wildlife documentaries and everything where they make the predators seem dangerous. So someone coming from international areas to Yellowstone or Grand Teton, they're like, oh, yeah, I probably shouldn't pet a bite a bear, right? They're like, that's been ingrained in them since they were little. You, know, you probably shouldn't pet a bear, yeah. usually, you'd hope. Um, and so people aren't pushing that boundary as much on those animals. Not that it doesn't happen, for sure, but 
all of a sudden you take these other, you know, three charismatic megafauna, the bison, moose, and elk. And to a lot of people, that's not what the publicity has been around dangerous critters. It also, to them, it looks like a docile cow or moose, um, or sorry, docile cow or like a horse, like a moose would look like. Mm -hmm. And it's suddenly, you know, the, the fear starts to lower and, and they start pushing these boundaries and, um, it's mind boggling. Like for, for me, I can see that power just in the muscle as they walk. You know, it's like you walk up to a horse, even though it's semi-domesticated, I still walk behind a horse and I'm nervous, right? And you're like, wow, I yeah. know the power that's in there. And you're somehow, in the people don't, yeah, somehow people don't feel that with, uh, with some of these animals. Um, and it is, it is a problem with the parks, you know? Um, but also you got to understand what these parks are doing. You know, they're, they're opening up this, realm into into nature that a lot of people don't get and they're they're letting them access it in such an amazing way you know i i struggle with this what's what's the best conservation right um I'll give you a quick example you could you could designate land wilderness think of that as like national forest all the all the things you're allowed to do there hunt fish camp um collect firewood whatever but it's zero mechanized anything you can't take right. You can't take a mountain bike in there. You can't take a chainsaw. It's as wild and pristine. I recreate in there all the time alone. It's amazing. Like as protected mm -hmm. as you could give land, like designated wilderness. A lot of people think it's the parks, but the parks have this mandate, like for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. And so you suddenly get roads, eateries, hotels, things that allow everyone in the realm of society, whether on in a wheelchair or whatever, to experience these beautiful things. Um, there's an issue with that. Obviously having people too close to animals and all that, but also, um, you know, it may not be the most protected. You're having all this infrastructure, right? But at the same time, it's almost like a wild zoo where that education piece is coming in and that interest in the area and that, that interest in conservation. You know, take someone in Florida. Do they care about the benefit or about the protection and conservation of the Grovant Wilderness that sits outside of Jackson, Wyoming? Probably not. Probably never heard no. of it. The Grovant no. Wilderness. You know, you even visited there and probably didn't even enter it, right? Um, yeah. Does someone in Florida care about the protection and conservation of the Yellowstone? Probably, you know, like they've mm -hmm. heard of it at least, you know, and may want to visit it. It's on their list. So um, at the cost or at, you know, to be able to have that education, all the benefits of Yellowstone at its cost, you're going to have these closer encounters of less educated people having these negative, effect, you know, encounters. But yeah. And, and like you said, uh, these things do happen. Um, I think the interesting thing for me to learn and, um, you know, as somebody that values conservation myself, it was, it's a bit disheartening, um, was that, uh, I think I read on average in, uh, the greater Wyoming area with Yellowstone and the Tetons, they have to either relocate or, uh, euthanize mm -hmm. like, like 14 bears a year, something like that. Yeah. So what's, what's the story behind that? Is that just people feeding them in the wrong places or they interact with people and then they don't have a choice or what happens? Yeah, it's, there? A, it's a number of different things. Um, you know, we are a player on this landscape now where we live on this landscape and, you know, unless you're going to like somehow get rid of all people, like it's not an option. So like we're, we, we're going to have to learn how to coexist with these animals. And in an area like this, you have a lot of visitors that, you know, maybe don't know how to coexist or the lessons aren't as, you know, well broadcast. And, and so, um, you do get these interactions where eventually in a negative way that the animal is interacting with humans in a way that really can't be, um, sustainable. Um, and, and mm -hmm. it usually ends, you know, 
we're not we're not killing people right obviously so um no. we're it usually ends sadly in 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 the animals um you know their loss um so i'll give you a couple examples like for uh a couple years ago, we had a bear um, at a pretty popular spot um, in Grand Teton called Signal Mountain. It had like three cubs, and it was giving us amazing sightings. Um, if if you were respectful to the bear, like it would just feed on the side of the road. We had amazing tours that got to see this thing very close for one season. It was awesome. Visitors, not not tour guide guiding companies, but some visitors started feeding that bear to like because it seemed so close and seemed so docile and chill and. Um, basically it got so food accustomed to people that it would come towards cars at a you know very close distance expecting food now what happens if they don't get food right not going to be too excited so then you can have these negative no. effects and so they ended up euthanizing the mom and the three cubs went to some zoo preserve i don't know exactly um had to get moved earlier this summer we had a bear that was found food that was left out of the campsite and mm. if it learns that these campsites are where they can get food, it's not going to go seek out its normal sources. It's just going to see these things as the spot. And all right. of a sudden you're forcing those sub 100 yards encounters all the time. So anyway, uh, they ended up, uh, that bear was so food conditioned, um, they relocated her, him or her across Jackson Lake where there's very little infrastructure all the way across the lake. Literally took like a euthanized, or a, sorry, a tranquilized bear and brought it all the way across the lake, put a collar on it. It's a huge lake too. It's, yeah, this it's is like, like a, a massive cross. distance. Yeah. yeah. And, and got into a nice, like, you know, um, uh, very wild area with not a lot of people. And actually I'm full support of this. They charged that person that left out the food, like five to $6,000, um, to pay for the collar that was going to get put on and the relocation. Yeah. Cause it's like, good. you know, this is, yeah, good. You know, it's like, um, if you're coming here, you have to respect the other people that live here. That's not just people, it's animals. Everything that lives here, you, you respect when you enter that animal's home. And so act in a way that's appropriate. And if not, you know, we, sadly the animal usually loses, but let's, you know, charge the people too. Yeah. I think it's, it's such a, um, difficult situation because you have this place that's, uh, open to pretty much anybody. Um, it's, it's not hard to gain access to either of these parks and, and I, they're done that way by design. And I like that, um, because I do think that, uh, the best way to get people to promote conservation and to take care of what's around them, or even like me, I'm in Maryland, but even, you know, what I can do to help out in, uh, Yellowstone or Wyoming, like the best way to get people to actually care about these issues is to show them why they should care. So that's, that's a really important mission. But at the same point, we also have to understand that having places like Yellowstone and the Tetons be open to the public and giving them so much, not unlimited access, but so much access, there are going to be issues. There, yeah. You're going to have people visit who leave food out or who decide to feed the animals or get too close and get hurt. And then that hurts the conservation aspect. So, um, and I was talking to Carol Baskin uh, about this a couple months ago about um, I think she and I disagree on whether or not, you know, there should still be zoos and things like that. And that's it's a bit of a different concept. But um, whether or not you have that one on one interaction and, and kind of the importance of that. But I'm a huge believer that that is something that you need. 
um, and kind of doing things like Yellowstone or the Tetons is, is like the nice middle ground where yeah. they're not in captivity, but they're not completely out of captivity either. It's 100%. kind of like a uh, an interesting um, dichotomy between the two. But um, I think the main mission now for people that have been there and care is to spread the word to people who are going. So yep. instead of just telling your friend like, Hey, this place is amazing. You should definitely go take your whole family, like, like have this amazing trip, make sure you spend money in the area. So it's all going to uh, conservation efforts and the people around there, which is all very important. But also when you go, don't leave food out. Uh, these are the rules around the animals. Make sure that you're not leaving a trace, things like that. Um, and, and it's just such an important message that I think gets overlooked sometimes because there's yeah. all the hype about like, oh my God, it's a bear. There's not as much hype around like, okay, you know, if we eat lunch around here, let's make sure we don't drop any chips on the ground. You know, yeah. it's, it's not like a, it's not a sexy thing to, to be uh, a conservationist or super aware of it, but, um, it's just such an important mission. Yeah. And that's, I think where the role of us guides can really come in is it's like, now we can give you that experience of this, you know, glorified zoo in a way you call it where, and I love that like middle ground term you made, you know, it is kind of between yeah. a zoo and the complete wild. And, um, we can both, you know, not only give them those experience, but also educate them on like what needs to be done to preserve this and in the right way. You know, I don't want to make it sound like these negative effects make me like against parks. I absolutely love them. And I think what they're after yeah. is, is, is incredible because, um, I mean, you can, this is where I struggled in the past with the wildlife research field. Love it. You know, collecting data, amazing. But, you know, in terms of how I want to approach conservation, at the core of those was hoping, you know, to eventually, you know, publish like one or two articles and one or two journals in one or two years. And we need that science. We need it on the ground. It's how a lot of our management decisions are created and made is based off this on the ground science. And it's phenomenal. But for me, right. um, I found more of an effect in my idea of conservation by suddenly taking people out rather than just writing and, and publishing, taking people out. And like last week, you know, I showed this first um lady her showed this lady her first wolf and i it kind of goes silent in the back and i turn around and she's crying she's literally like crying over having never thought she would have seen that and uh and that's not the only time i've had that happen and it's it's at that moment you're like whoa this is this is special and this is the conservation i kind of want to have because now they and you know people coming from a big city where wolves are not roaming you know suddenly are like wow i'm really into wolves or i'm really into moose or whatever it is and I want that animal and that habitat and that area preserved. And it's a cool form of conservation that the parks allow. Absolutely. I like to look at it um, as like a multi-step process, like modern mm -hmm. conservation, how you get the biggest effect. Um, and I think a lot of times now it starts by either word of mouth or online. So, yeah. you know, you're watching that Planet Earth documentary or this documentary about this or that. And then you're like, oh. I think that's kind of interesting and like, oh, like parts of this were filmed here and that's kind of accessible for me. I can get there with a flight and a ticket like, a, you know, I'm set. So it's um, in the modern world, kind of making sure that those steps are in place that gets people to those in-person interactions, I think is so important because like I grew up on Animal Planet. Um, I had the uh, the honor of working for uh, one of my mentor or one of my uh role models um at this conservation place uh brady Ooh. bar i used oh to watch God, a show no oh yeah, yeah. i, I used to watch a show on uh sure. nat geo and animal yeah. planet yeah uh ended up working for him um and and his uh lovely wife and that was just an incredible experience um but 
for me, that was like kind of full circle, right? Yeah. Because what I did was I grew up, you know, going to the aquarium here in Baltimore um, and then watching Brady Barr uh, and uh, Steve Irwin. And then what I eventually did was I started going more and then I was able to volunteer at the aquarium, but I was still like missing something, right? Like you're going yeah. to the aquarium, but like uh, they just added the touch t tanks like four or five years ago. When I was there at first, they didn't have stuff like that. So there was really no interaction. It was mainly just like you're you're going to look at things. Yep. And then I found this uh, this great conservation uh, company that they run together. Um, and that actually brought animals into contact with people. It was direct interaction. Children could touch the animals or hold them. And you would see just like kind of how you're mentioning just on a very uh, small scale, like you have this kid holding like a little alligator. It and he's like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Like it, it blows yeah. kids minds. So we uh, we usually don't have people uh, crying at the, at the beauty of nature. But I think that um, the conservation in terms of the interaction is so important. Um, and again, I, I know I differ from other conservationists uh, in the scene in that. But. Um, it's just so important that people actually get to see it and what better way to see it, but in its natural habitat. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I mean, I think, I think the one time I got close to tearing up a little bit was the second bear that we saw because it was framed, Whoa. uh, in the background by the Tetons. And for people who haven't been there, uh, I mean, the pictures don't really do it justice, but, um, Yellowstone and the Tetons have some of the most beautiful mountains I've ever seen. And once you get within two miles of the base, you're, you're like looking up at it still, you're like far away, but you're still looking up at it and you start to pick out like trees in different pockets and you realize how massive these formations are. And so we were kind of in that mindset of like, look how small I am compared to the world and nature. And then we see this black bear, the second one we'd seen that day. And he was just framed by this. And, and I have a great picture of it. Um, and it was just, it was probably one of the most moving things that I had happen in Jackson, just because this is where they're meant to be. I'm experiencing it. I, I'm not bothering it. But from now on, I'm going to think about that every time a bear, you know, story or something like that comes up. And it's going to change the way that I, I think about my choices, I think, too, which is important. Yeah. Cool. Con approach to your, like, yeah, stepping ladder, like you were talking about, to your ideas of conservation. I love it. Yeah, it's like you can't just keep people involved through the first step. Yeah, like that's the easiest step to watch something on Netflix. Um, yeah. There's a great documentary right now, Seaspiracy. Get them out. Oh yeah, and yeah. and that's the way that you engage with people now. You know, you can't. It's very hard to. I mean, I just experienced this with my friends uh, a month ago. As soon as I got back from Wyoming. I was like, guys, we gotta we gotta plan a trip out there. Yeah. And if you haven't experienced it, it's so hard to convince somebody to go to the middle of nowhere in Wyoming and they're Please like, well, what's out there? And you're like, what's out there? Yeah. Right? You're like <laughs> they're like, you're taking me to go look at mountains and maybe some wildlife. Like, yeah. why why is that worth my my ticket in? Um but yeah, that so that first step in convincing people I think is so important because you're able to show them the beauty and and the more complicated our cameras get and technology, the more you can make people feel like they're there. And then when they finally go, it's like this, this beautiful full circle moment. And that's yeah. how you get people to care. 
And I, I just appreciate that you had this, that feeling with the mountains. Cause like, it almost doesn't even need the wildlife when you have, I mean, dude, next time you come out, if you guys come out, let's get you up some of those. I mean, that's where, Oh yeah. that's my backyard and that's my big addiction. I mean, if, yeah, let's, it's, it's special. Absolutely. Those mountains are all someone needs to kind of be like, wow, this special spot. It's yeah, it's crazy. I would go again. I mean, the wildlife was my favorite part, but I would, I would certainly go again just for the mountains. And, uh, I believe probably part of the reason why they call you the human Red Bull is because of the insane, unbelievable and dangerous, uh, challenge that you like to do that, that I want you to talk about. Because when you first described it to me, I thought you were pulling my leg. Because I was oh, like, this, one. this yeah. is total bullshit. There's no way that he actually does this. Um, yeah, well, I think, I don't know. Human Rebel probably comes from, I just, and, and, and to the annoyance of some of my friends and family, for sure. And coworkers, I, I can't sit still. I mean, I can sit still while looking for wildlife, <laughs> you know, on a, on a tour is like my, my job. But if it's an off day, dude, like, yes, I just got back yesterday from climbing the Grand. Um super fun woke up at you know one in the morning and got seven friends or me and a buddy got six of our friends up there for their first time um and it was really special um and i just can't every day i just want to be you know i kind of move through this seasonal recreation of the rockies um you know it's climbing season now 100 percent. we're summoning peaks every week let's do it um it then moves to fall. It's like, sorry, September, November, I'm hunting. You know, I'm, I'm out in the woods living yeah. with animals, trying to feed the family and, and hunt. Winter, it's backcountry skiing straight up from November to, to April to spring. We're climbing those same peaks just now with snow and getting a much more fun down, you know, downhill run. And then it comes spring. We're looking for antlers. We're climbing again. We're, um, you know, inter- I'm intermixing all this with a couple trips to Colorado to skydive. And I just... I can't get enough of this beautiful drug called endorphins. Um, it is, is fun. And, uh, and then, yeah, back into climbing season. But I think what you're getting at is a specific event um, in Jackson. To me, this embodies our town. Um, since this was created, several, uh, leave it to Jackson, several people have made it harder. So there's been a couple harder versions I've now been doing. Um, but it all started my very first year. Um, I was hiking up one of the peaks and I ran into this father and son who were kind of like hiking with me a bit for times and kid brought up hearing about this thing called the picnic. I was like, Oh, what's that? And, um, I can't take credit for creating this. It's totally created by someone else. I can't remember his name, but in Jackson, um, he was turning 40. I believe he wanted to, he wanted to, uh, he didn't want to, did not want to believe he was turning 40. So he wanted to test himself and he made up <laughs> this, uh, challenge to see, um, if he still had it in him and he, and he called it the grand Teton picnic. He did it. Um, I'll explain in a sec, but it has since become this little local underground triathlon. So you do not race anyone. Um, you don't, you know, really just tell your best friends you're doing it. You're not posting on some big leaderboard. And that to me embodies our town. Jackson hole is an adult playground. Um, where we're a ton <laughs> of adults come to just recreate outside. So basically what you're going to do, if you want to do it to the book, uh, you'll start in town at a famous bar called the Cowboy Bar. You'll start at midnight and you'll take a shot. Okay. You're then going to bike at midnight from the downtown square with these beautiful arches of elk antlers. You're going to bike to Jenny Lake. It's about 21 miles through the valley. Um, pretty chill. There's like two small climbs, but not too bad. And then you're going to swim across Jenny Lake. Um, it's a mile and a half across, maybe a little 1.4. Um, water temps about mid forties, um, in summer, you're wearing a wetsuit <laughs> and then you go and climb the tallest peak in the Tetons, the Grand Teton. And so when you summit at 13,775 feet, 
which hopefully you've summited by midday. Uh, that's why we start at midnight to beat any afternoon thunderstorms. Yep. You're halfway done. So come down the Grand, uh, <laughs> be about 20 miles round trip of hiking and climbing. You're going to swim a mile and a half back, and then you're going to bike to town, and you try to get back in time to take a shot at the Cowboy Bar before they close the next night. Um, and it's I can't take credit for creating it. Um, I just love doing it every summer once or twice. I love doing the harder versions. I love doing any any form of it. It's just amazing. So, so how many times have you done that? Do you know, you I was trying to think about that this year. This was the first year I had someone uh, join me for the whole thing. My buddy Tanner is great friend of mine, skier, climber, everything, and he joined for the whole thing. And then in previous years, I've had someone join for a couple sections, like maybe they'll do the climb with me or the swim. But early, when I first started in Jackson, I was doing it all alone. I think I'm at, that was my eighth time doing the picnic this summer. Wow. Yeah. Holy cow. The yeah. fact that you're alone too, I I understand why you do that because it's supposed to be like a, a more personal journey uh, and, exactly. and love that. But, you know, you're, you're still going into like the wilderness and there's still hazards and like at any point something bad could happen and then you're just out there alone have you ever run into anything out there like have you ever run into a bear or like have you ever had an issue out there and and you know you're a little bit worried about it because you were alone yeah on you know i do a lot of stuff alone um you know i can't sit still like we mentioned uh especially like in indoors i can't sit still i just am kind of always wanting to get out there and do something but i can i can be alone in nature and sit still like when i'm hunting glassing animals looking for that i, I really enjoy my solo time if i'm in town i want to be with people doing so my solo yeah. time I love out in the wilderness and I'm um, pushing myself like on my own. You have no incentive, but that, and you know, I'm not doing it for anything else but myself. And it's, it's just rewarding. Um, the solo trips I've done more in like the national forest, far away from towns or things. I've had a lot more like close one-on-one -on -one encounters that could be dangerous. Um, on the picnic itself, I've more had some funny ones. Um, I had a porcupine on the bike ride my very first year like biking and just have my headlamps. I can only see like 20 feet away. And uh, he swatted my bike tire. I tried to get around him last second and I had like eight quills <laughs> in my bike tire. Um, that was a weird one. That same one actually, that was a very active night. I was working up the Tetons in the dark and I went to go number two in the woods and my headlamp, as my pants are down, catch three sets of eye shine. Two are wider and then the other two, or sorry, the uh, one is wider. The other two are much smaller and closer together. And I like finally like, brighten up my headlamp. And I realized about 30 feet away is this mother black bear with two cubs just kind of watching me go to the Oof. bathroom. And uh, it ended up being fine. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just kind of wondering what's up. And I wasn't in between mom and cubs and, and they spooked off. But um, nothing too, too dangerous or crazy <laughs> there. We don't have any, you know, back in San Francisco, you're surfing with like great white sharks. We don't have... A lake shark or something to worry about um right but uh no the bigger thing you know everyone always fears the animals they always ask me about that the bigger thing is exposure out here like where how sure. you're gonna have danger is lightning hypothermia you know falling stuff like that and so i'm much sure. more i prepare myself more for that for that event at least i prepare myself more for those kind of things than the animals sure yeah and um another thing that i wanted to talk to you about is the hunting yeah because um I think a lot of people initially they hear, you know, like you're an animal tour guide, you're uh, big into conservation and protecting those areas. And then you go hunting in the surrounding areas. Right. So talk to me about um, uh, 
kind of both because I've seen a lot of conservationists that are also big time hunters and they, they talk about that relationship, but talk to me about your personal relationship between the hunting and also being a conservationist. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, and I, and I, I get where hunting, I get both ends of the spectrum not get it, but I, I've seen all ends of the spectrum with hunting because I grew up in San Francisco, didn't know a single hunter had kind of that city mindset of it. And then I go to Montana and I'm getting kind of, you know, there's all these like guns on and bows on my college floor. And, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, what is all this? And then, and then I had this interesting experience realizing that all of my professors who are massive conservationists and huge wildlife biologists all hunt. And I was like, huh, I owe it to myself to look into this and realize like, I, there's clearly something I'm missing here. Um, right. And so, uh, you know, Entering that realm has taught me that, you know, the, the hunter is the ultimate conservationist and that they, there's this idea in North America called the North, North American model of wildlife conservation. And one of the key points of it is that if people pay, play a role in animal conservation, they'll care more about that animal, right? You can right. ask any elk hunter. They care more about elk and keeping elk on the landscape than anyone else right? Because they're interacting with them so close. They're feeding their families on them, right? They're having these one-on-one -on -one encounters and they have to, they need to know the animal more than anyone else. You know, if you just want to go out and look for elk, it's like, okay, I'm going to go to Yellowstone and might look on south facing slopes in the morning or something and, and try to find elk. But like to a hunter, they need to get within range in an area where they're hunted. So they're usually a little more nervous than like in a park. And right. they need to really know everything about the animal's habits. And it has opened up a whole new way of thinking about wildlife to me where it's no longer like, I just want to, I hope I go on a hike and I might just, you know, if I see an animal, that'd be sweet. Now it's like, I go on these hikes and I need to know so much about that animal that I can pr uh, produce those encounters. Right. And, uh, and that's an amazing just experience with the animal to begin with. You know, to me, hunting is getting within an animal's sensory range without him knowing you're there. You don't even have to harvest them. That's just, right. that's, that's hunting at its core to understand the animal so much that you can be in its sensory range without it knowing you there. And then there's harvesting and that's like, okay, I respect this animal a lot. And I understand that, you know, we all need to coexist. And also I need to feed my family. And so now I'm going to take from the na from nature, this, this one animal, um, all those numbers of how many we take and everything are managed by the state to make sure that the animal, the species stays around. And that'll allow me to then feed my family. It's a beautiful situation where the landscape can stay natural and pristine we can take this renewable resource at a rate that is sustainable and still be able to leave it natural and pristine. You know, you look at commercial farming and everything, we have to monoculture an area. We have to kill a lot of habitat for small mammals, insects, whatever, to yeah. produce this meat when you could get it in a way that keeps everything natural and beautiful and pristine, you know? And, and I, and I, I want to also approach hunting, not just from like, Hey, I'm trying to feed my family. That's an easy way to kind of like, you know, just make people okay with it. It's also like, there's, there's a management issue too, right? We, we are now a player on this landscape. You, know, you hear people say like the wolves are the biggest one. Like, why are we hunting wolves? You're not eating a wolf, which you could it wouldn't probably taste that great, but no, we're not <laughs> hunting them for that reason. It's, it's, there's issues when humans now live in their backyard, right? We have, you know, right. wolves and cattle or, hell like bears like literally being a danger to ki people's kids and they can't go out and hike at night right if if you're living in like somewhere that doesn't have those animals it's like oh i want them around i want them around but it's like yeah but if you live there you also you'd want your kids to be able to like hike around safely at night or something like that right yeah and so we're on the it's same different thing. when you're there yeah it's different when you're there and i hate the argument that like 
hey, we're in their country. Let's like let's kill people instead. It's like, dude, you're supporting mass genocide. That is not a viable solution. You know it. And the second your family was chosen, you'd, you'd be way against it. Let's actually have a real conversation about what to do. And yeah. that real conversation is like, we need to, since we're now, you know, altering the landscape, we're on it. We need to take a bit of these animals, right? To be able to leave them at an amount where they're around for sure in the area they're meant to be. But if they're coming into town, you know, we want to leave them in a population where they're not seeking out that new territory, like in our towns and everything. Right. Um, there's also- that can be done responsibly. And, and like you said, like all the, those numbers are managed and there's always going to be things like poaching and, and people taking more than they should. Mm-hmm. But, um, what I've seen, uh, at least in Maryland, is the regulatory bodies like Fish and Game are incredibly serious about their missions. All of them are typically hunters, too, and conservationists. Yeah. And so they're on the front lines. They know this stuff. And like you said, like a lot of times these hunters are the people who know these animals the best. And they want them to be around for longer. So typically yeah. most of them help to preserve that. Yeah, they want it. You know, and it's... Um... I know, one, one last thing I just want to bring up about management that is always, this is yeah. one of the greatest descriptions I ever heard of it, um, is, you know, animals naturally, predator and prey, go through huge boom-bust cycles, right? Like, people will make this argument, well, instead of hunting, why don't we just let them, you know, uh, let them just go about their natural process and they'll manage themselves? Yeah, sure, if we weren't on the landscape at all, maybe they kind of manage themselves. But the thing is, animals, predator and prey, naturally go through these huge, like, boom-bust cycles, right? Like, the predators right. move into an area, they eat a lot of the prey, Prey go down, also then the predators are overpopulated and they will you know, spread disease. They go down, prey goes back up, whatever. Huge sinusoidal waves. Okay, management, what that does is now that we're on the landscape, if any of these animals ever hit one of these dips, right, one of the troughs, we have with cities and roads and everything broken up their habitat in these like islands of habitat, right, where mm-hmm. we risk, we run the risk of genetic uh, diversity being low and lack of migrations and all that. If they hit one of these troughs, now that we've affected the landscape, they might not be able to get back up, right? Because right. it got below. So the natural boom bust cycles, what management can do is take these and make them quite a bit smaller, right? Sure. So we can have more stable numbers in the landscape that allows us to be able to uh, monitor them and know what to do. Because it's really hard to make decisions if they're going through these kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing about that too is um, it's funny when people make that argument that we should just leave things alone. Because mm-hmm. that's not often an argument that's made in anything else. Um, yeah. And I think exactly Good what point. you said is true, is that once you're in it, which we're we're in everything, right? Once you're in it, you have to help manage it, yeah. right? Like you would never, <laughs> you would never hear somebody who cares about global warming and uh, climate change argue that, well, we should like let the earth do what it, it, it should. <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's a ridiculously stupid argument because yeah. we're already in it, right? So we're if, if your argument is that it. we need to help fix it, we're already a part of it, exactly. So yeah. we need to be doing things to help fix it. That's, yeah, that's a terrible argument. That's yeah, so dumb. let's jump past that and get to a conversation that matters. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is interesting too. Um, I think people take examples that they see and and all humans are are usually guilty of this but usually it's something that they see and they'll they'll isolate that thing and whatever they experienced is how the world exists this is why i'm a huge proponent of traveling uh Mm -hmm. often and to as many different places as possible because the world is not the way that most of us view it i think and and again right it's that first step you're seeing everything through a screen 
unless you've been to Afghanistan, Wyoming, Puerto Rico, and Mexico, you don't know about the subcultures there. You don't know how things actually are. Everything that you've seen has already been picked out for you, and you're seeing a selection of what people want you to see. Yeah. Um, they just did this uh, this study on Cuba, and if you look up Cuba, typically you see like these beautiful houses and things like this, and these old-fashioned American cars. And then uh, this team wanted to see, is it actually like this? So they traveled to Cuba, and, and of course it's not. Because places typically get to pick what you see from their area, right? Yeah. So um, I think it's interesting to me when people have these opinions on things, but then have no uh, experience with them, which is why, again, like the the travel thing is, is huge. Um, but also in terms of management and conservation, people like to grab onto a single example and then extrapolate. And oftentimes I think what that does is they either overcorrect, which causes a bigger issue, or they get blindsided by that and then they ignore the bigger issue. So the biggest one for me um, when I was in college was this whole plastic straw thing started. And it was started because of a single video um, that came out, I believe, in 2015. It went viral and then it made the rounds again um, in you know years past that. And then finally it went viral this one last time. Everyone has seen the video of the sea turtle with the straw on its nose. They're pulling yeah. it out with pliers. There's blood. It's terrible, right? Yeah. That was the video that was used to justify getting rid of plastic straws. But me being myself, I wanted to look into it. I start looking into it and the original um, argument against straws was crafted by a fifth grader for a science fair project. And when you, and 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 he's a very smart kid. I, I'm not, I, I don't mean to call him out, but he's also a fifth grader, did not follow the scientific method very well. And when you go through his research, there's all of these discrepancies. So like he would call manufacturers of plastic straws and say, how many do you sell a year? Blah, blah, blah. And the ones that wouldn't answer, he would just guesstimate oh, based no. on other data. <laughs> I'm like, uh, when have we ever done anything based on that? So anyways, I do, I do all this research. Um, and uh, uh, the school that I was attending um, at the time asked me to write a piece on plastic straws. Um, and... I, I suggested, I said something that might be more interesting is if you get somebody who's anti-plastic straw or, or pro banning plastic straws and then mm -hmm. I'll argue the opposite and then we can do kind of a, a tit for tat, a very respectful conversation and then we can have people make up their own minds. And so yeah. uh, the paper agreed and we ended up doing that. Um, and through that research, what we ended up finding is that uh, plastic straws were almost like a false flag. Everyone got to say that they were doing something like Starbucks, Duncan, by changing these things around, limiting their numbers, not buying as many, right? But the much larger issue is the seafood industry yeah. because we know that over 50, I believe it's 53%, um, could be closer to 60% of all of the waste in the ocean in terms of plastic waste and in terms of um, harmful to uh, wildlife waste is fishing nets that are discarded or lost or thrown overboard because they're old and have holes in them. Those are the biggest killers of everything and the biggest polluters. Mm -hmm. Then when you look at plastic straws, that percentage is 0.003%. Wow. So you have all of these people who are attacking this concept because they saw this very passionate video about like, this is why we need to get rid of this thing. 
But in doing so, they're still buying seafood from companies that dump their nets overboard every season when they have too many hauls. So I think um, that's another part of conservation that I'm really interested in is getting down to what is the actual issue and then what is being touted as the issue? Because usually those are two different things. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it just shows the power of social media and how scary these small, how how such a small thing can blow up. You know, you look at going back to our hunting, like it sucks that the the majority of what is put out there is the minority of what people are doing. You know, like one person will poach or, you know, man, just do something, do something against uh, the local regs and it blows up and everyone is like, oh, that's what hunters are. That's, and you know, that's what makes national news. And I love this concept of, this is like, well, it started with silent hunter, right? There are many people out here that are just going out no one ever hears about them. They kill like massive elk or whatever, come home, feed their families, do it the next year, do it the next year. No one ever hears about it. And I try to embody yeah. that, not just for hunting, but for, for um, you know, all my outdoor recreation, this idea of a silent sender. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, if anyone asks like, what's your, what's your, uh, uh, who do you look up to? It's like, I, I look up to this concept of the silent sender, this person that just goes out there, crushes it in the outdoors or crushes it hunting, whatever. And it just, and moves on. You know, not that I don't like want to like post here and there, just let my family and friends know what I'm up to for sure. But like, they just, you know, they do it. And and that's the danger of something like hunting is, is the stuff that will make it out is the negative and it will change the views on and in such a wrong way. Um, you know, like I bear hunt and it's because I love bear meat and I understand the conservation and we can get into that, but God, is there not a more heated thing because on the internet because of yeah. the negative views on, you know, how bears have been put out. And I don't know, it's just, it's absurd what social media can do. But. Yeah. So talk to me about the bears. Cause, um, we, I think we touched on it lightly in, uh, Wyoming. We started the conversation around bear hunting. Um, yeah. and I think you and I are on the same page, uh, for the most part about like the conservation and hunting relationship and things like that. Um, and I think people to this point, it's it's not as challenging for them to still have that connection. And then you go into something like bears and then people it's a, it's a much larger bridge for people to gap. I think sometimes, yeah, it's even just like though animals, it's they're a, okay with like a chicken. Oh, yeah. field, they're okay with like a white tailed <laughs> deer. And yep. all of a sudden you make it a bear and it's like this, you've dropped a bomb, like get out of here. Yeah. They hate you. And it's so funny too, because, um, like uh, research came out that like pigs are one of the most intelligent animals, right? Mm-hmm. Did anybody stop eating bacon because of that article? I, I would be willing to bet that maybe a handful of people did, but yeah. it's, you're exactly right. People have this hierarchy of animals that it's okay to kill and then not okay to kill. And um, man, that's, I, I know that's like a PETA talking point, but it, it does ring true. Like it, people have these weird conceptions of things. So talk to me about the bear hunting um, and why that's that's the same thing, uh, not the same thing as hunting something like an elk, but it's it's within the same vein of the conservation relationship with the hunting. Yeah. So best example is kind of how I first got into it. I was working a hunter check station in Montana. I was getting college credit to like check people's animals in that they harvested and make sure they were harvesting what they were allowed to harvest. And uh, I was just chatting with a biologist during a slow time. He's like, oh, do you hunt? And I was like, hey, man, I just met out of San Francisco. I'm trying to get into it, you know, deer and elk. And he's like, oh, cool. Do you hunt bears? And I was like, well, no, I hadn't even thought of it. And he's like, he literally asked me, he's like, could you? And I was like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> and he's like, literally like, dude, I have to, in just the county of like Missoula or into college, like, 
he had to harvest, you know, kill like five to 10 bears or whatever it was a year in people's backyards because they're Whoa. problem bears. The bears have reached a population where now they're at carrying capacity in the woods and they're coming into towns, causing problems, you know, um, you know, literally becoming a danger out on people's decks and everything. And if, you know, if they then have to put them down, like they, they can't just relocate them everywhere because there's already bears in those spots. And also it's just the, the money and whatnot that would, that would need is insane. Um, and so they put them out because it happens so often. And so he was killing these bears in Beals Yards and they can't be seen as always benefiting from their job. And just, you know, it's kind of, then you'd worry like, oh, are they killing the bears so they can eat? So maybe the skull and hide is used for educational purposes, but pretty much the meat is thrown in a dumpster. Hate to say it, you know, that happens. Jeez, and and yeah. so it's like, he's like, could you, can we manage this problem by you going out five to 10 miles in the woods, harvesting this, harvesting this animal in an ethical way, you know, fair chase and all, Come back, use everything in the animal, eat the meat, use the hide for whatever, the skull to decorate, you know, cause appreciation to the animal. And let's, prior to it coming into someone's backyard and us having to kill it, right? Like, like right now, Wyoming, and I don't want to jump into all the politics of Wyoming grizzly bears, but um, they are off the endangered, they're on the endangered species list, sorry, within the state of Wyoming. And that, under that list, you're allowed to list what's called a DPS, a distinct population segment. They're on the list in the greater Yellowstone area. Totally. So they're, they're protected. There's no hunting, but they were taken off briefly in 2018 um, because we started having these nuisance problems. Um, right. Literally the state game and fish were having to harvest grizzly bears that were, you know, coming, going into areas that now like we really shouldn't, you know, outside of the range of like the greater Yellowstone area, cause they were getting overpopulated right. there or at carrying capacity or moving into those spots becoming problem bears and they had to get put down. So the state was already putting down these animals. Right. Um, and so they were taken off and then put back on because of lawsuits and everything. And it's like, look, if we're already going to be harvesting these bears, right, because they're problem bears, why don't, instead of paying someone, a state you know, game agent or whatever, state wildlife agency, to, to take care of this problem, what if instead we let the public play a part in this conservation? Let right. them harvest the same. We're still harvesting the same amount of animals. We've already been harvesting them. Let's let the public do it. Use the meat. And also make money, right? The public, I would pay for a grizzly tag in this state, right? Like I would give you oh, yeah. money rather than you spending it to get the same management goal. We're still harvesting the animals to a point that they stay within the confines of where we are okay with them being. Um, so yeah, so we we can hunt black bears in the state. Um, grizzlies would be, you know, Canada and Alaska. But um, but yeah, it's a it's an animal I, I really, it's one of my favorite animals to be close to. I've had a lot of phenomenal and scary and encounters with them in the woods. And I just, I'm glad that we live with them on the landscape and hunting them allows me to, you know, like we talked about, help with this conservation idea, but also interact with them in a way that's really wild. And also like eat, it is my favorite meat for sure. That is awesome. Yeah. And I think your, your point is, is well-made, right? If you're already going to be harvesting them, why not make money for the state? Right. Mm -hmm. Let the public get involved instead of it being another government taking care of, you know, this issue. Right. Yeah. And open up these opportunities for people. It's the same amount, but you're actually getting much more than what you would be if the state just took care of it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think there is so much pre less. the problems occurring, you know, like pre. Right. The, it's it's pre uh, preventative. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because once they get in that yard, it's. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we were talking Wyoming a little bit 
about your interactions with different bears. What do you think is like your craziest interaction that you've had? Um, I'm going to preface this also with the fact that you told me that you don't carry bear spray uh, because you'd rather pick up a stick and and wave it around and scare the bear off. So with that in mind, yeah. what, is well, your, what is your craziest story? So when I worked up in Canada on this polar bear snow goose project, we didn't carry bear spray. We carried shotguns with like cracker shells in them. So it was like a bottle yep. rocket that you would shoot into the air in between you and the polar bear and then like 100 yards in the air to explode and scare them away. Um, down here, if I'm in grizzly country, I like to, I don't always, but I like to carry um, bear spray on my right hip and a 10 mil handgun on my left. The, the handgun mm -hmm. is for noise. It's not to like harm the bear or anything. The bear spray is what I'd reach for first in an encounter. But what you said is correct. I, I pride myself on having never sprayed bear spray at a bear. I probably should have in several encounters, but I would rather pick up a stick, wave it, yell, make noise, and statistics show that should work the majority of the time. Um, right. You know, you got you to understand there's no bear hospital out there. If they get injured, they're going to die, right? And, you know, they can't hunt, can't feed or whatnot. So you got to stand your ground, look big, make a lot of noise, convince that animal that you think you have a chance of winning in this fight between the two of you, right? Because all of a sudden it's like, oh, whatever I'm after, protecting cubs or whatever, or protecting a kill is not worth getting injured over by this thing that's yelling and screaming at me and looking big. So it's just like, oh, I'll run away. Right. Right. Um, so that's been my strategy. Um, you know, some of my most special bear encounters have actually been between mothers and cubs that have just been like, could have gone bad, but been very special, like sitting with them, watching them sleep and whatnot from like a hundred yards. Uh, some of my scariest have actually been the, the most, I should say this, the most scared I've been in the woods has not actually been ha a bear there, but it's worrying about them. Two instances where I was one time in like two trailheads from where this massive grizzly attack occurred on Todd Orr in Montana. And another time where the day before I walked like three miles of grizzly tracks to get to where I was hunting. And both times I ended up harvesting an animal, once a black bear and once a elk and right at last light. And so one being in an area where this attack had just occurred and the other just walking on prints to then be cutting up an animal in the dark alone <laughs> in a headlamp. And then yeah. packing out sections of that animal back to your truck and then going back in wondering if it had been claimed is just a terrifying, like that's when I've sweated the most in the woods, I'd say. Um, yeah. Just because there's the what if, right? And that's stress. But what if man, a grizzly a found it? What if a grizzly finds me? Yeah. A lot of the bluff charges though, those happen so fast and out of nowhere. Like you almost don't even have time to be scared. You just react. So like, um, right. I mean, I was going down to swim in a river a couple years ago and like, I hooked this tree to where my little swimming hole was like right at first light. And this grizz was just feeding straight at me at like 25 yards. And the wind was blowing right in my face. It had no way of smelling me. And it was just feeding right. Out. I'm in board shorts and have a towel in my hand and bear spray. Like that was it. And it's yeah. feeding towards me. And I kind of just realized it's not going to bring its head up in the wind. He's never going to notice I'm there. It's just going to feed onto my feet. So I kind of just made this combo move of like shove my foot back, pop the bear spray safety off to make noise. And it looked up and we just locked eyes at like 20 yards at this point, like eye to eye predator on predator contact. It was awesome. But sure enough, it heard something, didn't know what it was, flipped around, ran. Um, that same year I had a black bear, I came back to camp, headlamp hit my tent. I hear this like, woof, this like snort woof the bears make, look up and this black bear is like seven to eight feet from me on the other side of the tent. He, the second my headlamp hits him, he goes full hind legs. And I, it was like a six and a half foot black bear. They get about six, seven feet in Montana max. And I'm looking at his chest 
And I remember thinking if this thing came down, I mean, they do that, like not, not to like intimidate also, it's just for them to get a better view, but it is very intimidating right. looking on its hind legs at seven feet. <laughs> well, this giant down, seven foot bear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was big, it was insane. And the, the, but I tried like, rather than just like, oh bear, hose it with bear spray. Like, no, like dude, that's last resort. I imitated him, he woofed at me. I woofed back, but way louder, just woof, just, and this thing just hit the deck and ran. <laughs> And uh, man, those are the moments in the woods I cherish, man. That's why I go out there alone. You have many more encounters when you're alone because you're quiet. And um, it's just, you never know what's going to happen. It's so special. Um, you know, it, it might make you pee your pants at times. Like I was, man, two <laughs> years ago, I was looking for, to give you an idea on how much I love this area and this section of woods that I want to go to. It's the closest to like the early mountain men life as you can experience. And that like, I love the mountain right. men stories, you know, coming out here in the early 1800s to you know understand the West. And, and I was looking for antlers for 11 days. I was also doing some black bear hunting. So it was like black bear antler hunting combo, um, in, in Wyoming. And in 11 days, I ran into 27 grizzly bears. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. Half of those were like under 50, 25 yards. And I had like several bluff charges and like, there was one, it just like turned kind of like ran. It was basically doing a bluff charge to check me, you know, check about, you know, and that's usually what they do and runs. And he hit like 25, 30 yards and just like hit this log mid run and like shook the log, all claws showing, showing me his power of shaking and the length of the claws. And I like, it was hard to stay on my ground. I kind of like shake in my spot. Pretty I sure bet. I soiled, soiled my pants a bit. And this thing, like, but sure enough, saw me stand my ground, flipped 180, ran. And I was like, this is, you know, not saying something more negative can happen, but it just has taught me, like, there's, you know, yeah, you just, with any risk, the more you're exposed to it, the more you become comfortable with it and learn how to mitigate it. And, um, yeah, yeah, I've gone about it. That is crazy. Yeah, I, I just think, I mean, I've had very limited experience with, with the wildlife out there. But, um, I mean, that was my favorite part of going out there and you, you really don't, you talk to people about like biodiversity and they tell you about the rainforest. So they tell you about, you know, these different places, but, uh, I mean, Wyoming is special. That, is. That's a really special place. The benefit yeah. Of, yeah. Protection. And yeah, I mean, when you, when you can spend 11 days and see 27 bears, bighorn sheep, um, you know, trout swimming in the river and, you know, you're picking up morel mushrooms and stuff. You're just like, wow, this is, this is wild land. And this is, I'm glad this is a thing and I hope it stays a thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, Neil, thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate yeah, it. Of course, man. Thanks, Ben, so much. Good to see you again. Absolutely. Good seeing you too. All right. And that is going to do it for our episode. I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Neil. Maybe he'll be back on in the future. Uh, Neil, where can they find you if they want to follow you or check in, see what you're up to? Uh, yeah, main social media is just Instagram. So uh, it's my name, Neil, N-E-I-L, and then R, which is the letter of my middle, or first letter of my middle name, and then more, M-O-O-R-E. So Neil R. Moore. All right, perfect. Yeah. Definitely make sure you check him out on Instagram. If you want to check us out, you can find us on most social media at Totscast. We've got Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all the good ones. If you want to oh, check out more episodes, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you guys ever want a tour, Brushbuck Wildlife Tours, we do Grand Teton, Yellowstone, Alaska, Africa, and uh, yeah, come find me out here in Wyoming. It'd be a great time. 
make sure you check him out. Uh, that that safari that I went on him with him was life changing. It was amazing. So definitely check him out. If you want to check out other episodes, we are on Spotify, Google, Apple, any streaming platform you can think of. We're adding to more every single day, so you can check us out there. You can do a Google search for Tots Podcast, or you can go to totspodcast.com. That is every single one of our episodes. It has more information, different categories, anything you could possibly want. You can check us out there. If you want to support us, we also have a Patreon. Just look up Tots Podcast on Patreon, and we will pop up. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.